Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd. It's been another challenging yet strangely beautiful year. And as 2021 gets ready to close out here soon, I reflect on all the ups and downs, but I am truly grateful for where things are at in my life right now and for the possibilities in the new year. And you're a big part of that. I really appreciate all your support, not just with the podcast, but for being on this journey with me, this journey of conversation in the Kind Mind gatherings on social media with the new question and reflection segment, and for your commitment to open dialogue and for caring about each other. And I'd like to invite everybody to join in the last Kind Mind gathering of the year. It'll be December 28th at 7 p.m. Since it's holiday time and people are traveling, there won't be an in-person gathering. It'll only be online via Zoom. This final virtual Kind Mind gathering will be about the art and science of giving, and everyone who joins will have the opportunity to share their greatest blessing this year or new wisdom that may have emerged in your life. So I think it will be a very positive gathering and inspirational meeting to guide us through the transition from one year to the next. And you have to be a Patreon member to join, but all members will be welcome for this one meeting. So even if you just want to sign up for $5 and cancel right after, you're welcome to. But I hope you'll at least check out some of the offerings through Patreon. And if you're a $10 member or higher, please take a look at the Kind Mind Studio page on my website. I've put instructions for an eight-week meditation program to get started or to take on a new challenge for the new year. Eight weeks to change your brain, self-directed neuroplasticity. Eight weeks have been observed to make measurable changes in the brain with mindfulness and meditation, as with many other uh, practices in life, from juggling to music. So check it out. The instructions are there. It starts you off at two practices daily, one in the morning, one in the evening, and as short as one to three minutes in the beginning, and it will systematically grow over that eight-week period up to about 30 minutes to conclude. I hope you'll check that out. Also, you may have noticed the last episode was called Live Free or Dialogue. It was a conversation with author and tech entrepreneur Jeff Booth. I encourage you to take a listen to that. It's about the psychology of inflation and the advent of Bitcoin and the philosophical implications of cryptocurrency, among many other topics around the economy and the anxiety with the current state of affairs. And so that is a little bit different format. And from now on, when I include a conversation in this podcast, it will be preceded by the words live free or dialogue. That way you'll know it's a bit of a departure from the standard format. And if you just prefer to hear uh, recordings from the Kind Mind gatherings, like today's episode, you can skip over that. It's mostly a conversation series that I want to feature on YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, please do so. YouTube.com forward slash Michael Todd Fink. And you'll find all the Live Free or Dialogue conversations there and you can watch and listen. And so this episode is a timely one. It's about the psychology of holidays and rituals. A ritual is a set of defined 
actions or behaviors. It also could be a compulsion like in obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a stereotypical or rigid set of actions like hand washing or checking a stove. But I don't really get into that in this episode. I'm more concerned with ritual as it has evolved from spiritual traditions. For thousands of years, religions have been almost the sole purveyors of rituals. The sets of actions and patterns and behavior that have been deemed sacred, but often evolved into the dogmatic aspects of mythology. And in modern times, there continues to be a mass migration away from these religious institutions, and yet spirituality still matters. And as our world continues to rapidly change in profound ways due to technology and social media, with perhaps many more unforeseen risks, It may be worthwhile for us to establish secular rituals for our mental health. Because as you'll see in this episode, rituals are being studied in psychology and in neuroscience, and we now know that they have anxiolytic properties. So much so that there's even a tech company in Silicon Valley that designs rituals for corporations and organizations or secular individuals. They have a motto that something like, tell us your problem and we'll create a ritual for you. I mean, if you think about grief and the sense of comfort that our rituals have brought to people during loss, from marriage rites to pregame preparation to births and deaths, rituals are fundamental to human experience and culture and have provided grounding when venturing into the unknown. But I make a distinction in this episode between ritual when it's mechanical and ritual when it's spiritual. The word spiritual contains the word ritual. And those three extra letters, I thought, could stand for one, soul. If your soul is not into the activity, well, it's not going to be as meaningful. When I think of growing up with rituals in the church, those were top-down Rituals. We, we talk in this episode about top-down versus bottom-up. So I would be essentially going through the motions at some point. My, my heart wasn't into it. I didn't feel connected to some of those activities. And so therefore, it doesn't bring the second one, P, peace. When a ritual is spiritual, not only does your heart need to be into it, but it has to be comforting. It has to be soothing. It has to be peaceful. And then I, intention, Intention means that you're present. If you're distracted and your mind is elsewhere, which, which can happen in services, in religious services, and I think is part of the reason why people want to find new ways to be spiritual or personal ways to be spiritual, whether it's in nature or in private meditation. And intention also involves purpose. What is the cause of concern? And even though there's mixed results at best when it comes to studying the effects of rituals on the outer world, we do know that it transforms our inner life. So even if it is merely for relief or to reduce performance anxiety. I also remember during my time in India being given the opportunity to participate in a sacred ceremony, a a ritual worship of the goddess Saraswati. It was near a holy river and it was really beautiful, but I. Remember that 
I didn't feel these three things, the S, P, and I, the soul, the peace, and the intention, because I didn't know really anything about that mythological deity, and I didn't really know what the, the actions meant. And I told this to one of the monks, guiding, and he understood, meaning he kn- knew that it couldn't quite be that kind of spiritual experience yet for me without having those qualities brought to the practice. So remember those three throughout this episode for making a ritual become spiritual, something that contributes to our inner peace and psychological growth, soul, peace, and intention. I want to close this introduction by reading a poem from my upcoming book, which I hope to release in the new year. When I think of the holidays at the end of the year and the winter solstice, I'm reminded of customs involving the light, lighting of a candle, lighting our houses, Christmas lights, and so on. So I want to close by reading this poem called Candlelight Vigil. In many religions, lighting candles on holy days is a common practice, as is remaining awake all night in vigil. But there is a mystical significance. The light represents the soul or consciousness, and the candle is the body with its ever-depleting wax. Our time here is like one long night on earth due to the darkness of ignorance, of where we came from and where we go after death. Even when it seems like our candle is steady, with plenty of wax, an unexpected wind may blow it out. So, to be vigilant is to look for the light within, and then love every breath for the short while that it keeps the soul light and the candle body together. I hope you enjoy this episode, everyone. Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. Interestingly, for me, in the years that I've worked at the hospital, this time of year is often dedicated to helping patients or clients rethink their holidays because even outside of the pandemic, for many people in recovery, this can be a really stressful time. For like 60% of Americans outside of the pandemic in 2015 study, nearly three-fourths of of people felt significant increase in stress and anxiety around these coming weeks. Why might it be particularly troublesome for people with psychiatric conditions or addiction? Well, in 70% of addiction, patients report family trauma. So holiday time may mean that you have to see people that you may not be comfortable seeing, or not necessarily have to, but there may be a lot of pressure to be around extended family, and there may be different dynamics that are uncomfortable for people. For people recovering from addiction, holidays typically can involve a lot of heavy alcohol use, Thanksgiving, Christmas, definitely New Year's, and it can be triggering for those patients and clients to 
have to step outside of what is usual for them because when it's a ritual or a tradition and now you're not going to join your family because you know it's more important to stay sober and everybody's going to be drinking at the holiday party, that can be depressing for people. They can really feel like, okay, well then what's my life going to be like now or how do I have fun anymore? So we talk and we explore alternatives and when people successfully make a shift, they come out a lot richer and a lot more fulfilled. You know, sometimes patients will take up a new tradition and we'll talk about how to do that for ourselves anyway, but they may join like a volunteer project. I know many people have uh, made Thanksgiving a time of serving homeless or serving the poor and giving time to a soup kitchen or different programs that are uh, raising funds or, or giving gifts to families in need. And that can really have a powerful spiritual effect on one's mind when you step outside of what you're familiar with and you realize that life can move positively forward even if you have to make a change. And now, since we're all limited to some extent at least with how many people we can be with or how far we can travel it's going to be difficult i know for a lot of people who can't honor their normal traditions i'll talk a little more about ritual in the brain the science of rituals and holidays and a little bit more of the history and etymology of its role in human civilization rituals are actually the brain's way of making sense of this otherwise chaotic world. And when you can't even do the ritual or the tradition, that can be really overwhelming to people's systems. People who maybe don't already have some of these traditions negatively impacted. This is an example of some of the shields that we have and the routines that we have, which have already been disrupted. But routines, rituals, traditions serve as mental shields from the reality that we're growing older every day, we're fighting off illness and other harm, and the existential, not only existential threats to humanity, but our own, our own mortality. We're always coming to face with that, and routines help us have some sense of control. And so when you're going through all these changes and then the traditions are changing, that's a lot. So holiday is derived from Holy Day. Much of our, of our holidays are related to religious traditions. And that's what's also particularly challenging in the United States because our country is a melting pot of different cultures, races, ethnicities, with all different religions. However, there has been dominating cultures throughout our few hundred years of existence. People have different experiences in the United States, and not everybody resonates the same way with different religious traditions and so on. But historically, holidays come from holy days. And then there are other celebrations that become holidays, like political observances and national observances. Recently, we had the Festival of Lights. It's an Indian holiday that has spread throughout the world. It's called Deepavali, or Diwali for short. And I had shared some thoughts about that on my social media during that time. Because I think it's an opportunity to understand 
or to look a little bit more deeply at why we have holy days and how we come to even have holy days. So this festival of lights comes from Deepa, which means lamp. And the way people celebrate in India is they put lights out, they decorate their homes, they put lights in the windows and in the doors. The deeper significance or the spiritual or metaphorical significance of Diwali is related to an ancient epic known as the Ramayana, which is about the king Rama of this ancient time in a certain region of India and his wife Sita. Due to some conflict in the family, Rama and his wife and his brother were exiled from the kingdom for 14 years and lived in the forest. And during that time, Rama's younger brother maintained the throne in his absence, but he never sat on the throne because he loved his older brother. So he put Rama's sandals on the throne and let the people know, I'm not the king. I'm just managing till my brother returns. And so Rama is in the forest and he has many adventures. You may have heard of the monkey god Hanuman. They have many adventures. And in this time of exile, his wife is kidnapped by an evil king named Ravana with ten heads. And they take her to the island of Lanka, which is now known as Sri Lanka. And Hanuman has to perform some miracles to help Rama win his wife back. But after all these adventures in this great epic, they return after the 14-year exile. And when it's time for their return, the people of the kingdom who love Rama because he was he's noble, he's humble, he's only concerned with serving the people, and he took this exile as an opportunity to meditate and to seek the, um, the guidance of the hermits and sages and wise families living in the forest. So when they return, everybody celebrates by lighting candles and cheering for the restoring of the kingdom. So that's why people put, put lights out. But Rama is a representation of, of God, of the divine in human form sort of like a Krishna or a Christ in other religions. And the mystical significance of these lights is related to meditation. So Brahma is, in, if you think of the Holy Trinity in, um, in Christianity, Rama would represent part of that Trinity, and also part of that Trinity is the Spirit or, or the Self, the Atma in uh, Indian philosophy or Buddhist psychology. And the self is missing, is in exile. Not because it's not there, but because the ordinary mind has forgotten the soul, forgotten the reality of who one is. And that's symbolized by the exiled king and queen. So when they return, uh, all these lights emerge. The lights are displayed in the houses, and the house, especially in Eastern philosophy, is a symbol of the human body. In, in other systems too, the body is spoken of as a, a temple with nine doors and windows, those being like the eyes, the mouth, the ears, and so on. And so the light 
in the windows and the doors of the homes of the people of Ayodhya, the kingdom of Rama, means to look with the light of love, to speak words that are illuminated with love and kindness during the holiday, but all times. Just like our Christmas is a time, ideally, when people think of others and give to others, but not just for one day of consumerism. The idea is that you open your heart to others. So that's the inner meaning of Deepavali, Diwali, to go inside and bring the king and queen back to the throne of the self. And when that happens, naturally a person becomes illuminated. And of course, that deep mystical significance is largely lost through the mechanical process of celebration and merrymaking, just like many other holidays that some of us may be more familiar with in Western traditions. So I said it comes from holy days, holidays, and ritual comes from rite. Rite is a specific set of actions. And modern researchers have found that when people perform these rites, it has a soothing effect on the brain. And these rites and rituals have either a top-down process or a bottom-up process. Top-down would be things like um, lighting candles in the church or the traditions that you talk about the, that honor Thanksgiving. We didn't create Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving came from the top down to us. The culture gave us Thanksgiving. None of us decided, hey, let's start a holiday called Thanksgiving. That's an example of a top-down ritual. Bottom-up ritual are the ones that people create for themselves. Athletes are commonly known to have their own personal rituals. Like, for example, Michael Jordan wore the same North Carolina shorts under his uniform and I believe had the same steak and potatoes at the same time before every game. And then even would go to the, the scorer's table and put chalk on his hands and then go like this and spread it in the face of the announcers. And if he didn't do all those things, he didn't feel right about entering into the game. So that became a right, his own personal ritual. Researchers have done fMRI experiments where they're observing subjects performing their rituals and they watch what changes in the brain. And for example, uh, the amygdala soothes and calms down. That's our, where our fear center is and our fight-flight center is. But the fear in our personal rituals are often, is often associated with personal failure. Our sensitivity to personal failure, especially related to performance anxiety, it diminishes when you have a personal ritual. Now, of course, you may say, well, ultimately these rituals are arbitrary. They are, but they create a sense of control in a world where everything is out of control. We're seeing now that the world is really out of control and it's hard to come to grips with, but that is always the case in the sense that there is no guarantee that the light in this candle will last as long as the wax will last. So the body is the wax, right? And it's always diminishing. And someone, a young person may feel like, I got plenty of wax, so I'm good. But there's no guarantee a strong wind won't blow out your candle, right? So that means that is the reality at all times. Everything is precarious. And when we have these collective dark nights of the soul, 
you really feel it, you really understand, and it's like really up close in your face that I have routines and I have people in my life that I lean on and I count on maybe, but that can all change in, in a heartbeat. And rituals give us that sense of stability, that sense of control in a world that has been becoming more and more disordered since the Big Bang. Another interesting study was done with subjects performing a ritual, but it was an unfamiliar ritual to them. It was actually just a set of arbitrary behaviors in the wake of loss. And the researchers taught it to two groups of subjects. But one group of subjects, they said, this is an ancient ritual. It's sacred. And they taught them the behaviors. And the other group, they said, this is just a random set of behaviors that don't mean anything. But both groups had to perform it. And then they followed them afterwards. And they found that those who believed that it was sacred had significantly less grief and reduced anxiety after performing the ritual. So I'm not saying this to discount, but I'm saying that we can make anything sacred if we love and if we bring our heart and our soul to the present moment, to what we're doing. And in that way, everything potentially be, can become like a ritual. But at the very least, it would be good to have a, a morning ritual and an evening ritual, whether it fits into your to your own belief system or practice, or if it's something totally new that is inspired by the times and the changes that we're going through. When a ritual is just mechanical, it loses its spirituality. The word spiritual contains ritual, but that S needs to go with ritual. To me, the S stands for soul. If you don't bring your spirit to what you're doing, it's a dead ritual. It's just mechanical. Many holidays have become mechanical processes. They've become just fun, merrymaking, wasteful consumer observances. Now, I'm not saying like getting together with people is wasteful. That, that's meaningful. But so much of it has just become a pressure to conform to the way all of these observances have become commercialized. But remember, whether it's an official holiday, a formal holiday, like Christmas, Thanksgiving, and so on. If you don't bring that S to the ritual, then it won't become spiritual. I'd like to share a story with you to, to illustrate this. Once there was a Zen master with a little meditation space where the followers would meditate every evening. But the Zen master's cat would become a little bit naughty and disruptive during that time because cats are mischievous, you know. They hold grudges. <laughs> and, and it would move around and knock things over and make it hard for people to concentrate. So the, the master says to one of the students, can you put a little rope around the cat next time in meditation? Tie the cat up so it can't roam around. Normally the leash is for the dog, but in this case... They made a leash for the cat. And they did this from then on. But the master was old, and after some time, he left his body. When his successor began teaching, they continued to tie the old master's cat up. 
Eventually, that cat died. And the new master didn't know why the cat was tied in the first place. He just knew that it's important to tie a cat anytime you're having meditation. So they got a new cat just to tie the cat up while they meditated. And after that master passed and new masters came, he started to teach the students about why, about the spiritual significance of tying up the cat and controlling the, you know, the inner cat and then on and on. And then scholars started to write about Zen and the art of tying up the cat. <laughs> and this is how, how some rituals devolve into mechanical processes that don't have the meaning that we're looking for in sacred rites. Another story is kind of the inverse of this. This is a, um, a Jewish parable of a rabbi of a village who was thought to be very much in tune with the divine, a saintly man. And when the village was in trouble, like struggling to, to farm, like let's say there's a drought, or when people were sick, they would come to the rabbi and ask for intercession. And the rabbi would go to the forest, to a special location, and there he would perform a ritual, which included some special prayers. And then he would ask God to save his village. And inevitably, the village would be helped. After some time, this rabbi passed, and his successor was asked to continue the tradition. So when the village was in trouble again, they came to the rabbi's successor and they said, Hey, can you please help us? This rabbi says to himself, I don't, I don't know the exact location in the forest where my predecessor went. So he's wandering the forest. He can't find the spot. Finally, he stops and says, God is everywhere. Surely you can hear this prayer and observe this ritual. And he finishes and he says, please save the village. And inevitably, the village is helped. After some time, this rabbi passes. The successor, again, is asked for intercession. They say, your predecessors used to go to the forest. They had a special ritual and it would always work. This rabbi says, yeah, I know those old men used to go to the forest, but I don't remember where they went. And I don't even remember exactly how the ritual goes anymore. But he goes out in the forest and he thinks to himself, it doesn't matter if I remember the ritual or the place because God is everywhere and he, he can hear my prayers. So he just asks for help. And then the village gets better. The last part of the story is this next successor is asked to intercede and he says, I don't know where those old men went or what they did or what they said. He's sitting in a, in a chair. But he thinks to himself, surely I don't have to go to the forest or remember the words. I know, I'll tell God a story. And he tells the story of the people and asks for help. And the moral of this parable is that what matters is what's in the heart. And yeah, 
the outer practice is going to change, but what's really important is that the light of that candle is passed on. Not so much that all of the peripheral things are maintained always, and sometimes they can't be. And as the world changes, we have to adapt, I think. But if you bring these two together, your rite, your ritual, and your spirit or your heart, you can be like the successive rabbis that were still able to commune with God, even though they did not know the specific words of the prayer or the ritual. Similarly, in my practice in meditation with monks and masters, I would often tell them, I'll never be able to pronounce these Sanskrit words correctly. I can barely speak English <laughs> correctly still. And my teacher would say, it's fine. What really matters is what's in the heart when you're trying to chant the, the mantra or you're thinking of the, of the mantra. When I was younger, even before meditation and, and other spiritual pursuits, my tradition started to change, not because I chose to, but because life changed. When I grew up with so many aunts and uncles and cousins on my mom's side. My mom had nine brothers and sisters. My dad had 13 brothers and sisters. So, I don't know, like 50, 60 cousins, something like that. Massive holiday gatherings. They would last all weekend. Um, that's where I started to play music. We always took turns performing and singing collectively or, or for the family. And that was my sense of what holidays were. But gradually I came to realize, no, that's just what goes on in my family. <laughs> Every other family is a little bit different. And slowly people moved and feuds started also. And then eventually we weren't doing that anymore. And when I was a little bit older and into young adulthood, I started feeling that I wanted to do something different on these holy days or what were holy days in, in my upbringing. So at Christmas time, because I'd have time off work, I started fasting. I started meditating. I started observing silence for multiple days at a time. Not just because it was Christmas, but because there was already a stronger sense of love in me just from my upbringing at that time. I didn't know any better at the time, but that's when it could be drawn out of me, when we would watch certain holiday movies or when the extended family would give us certain gifts. So it was already a time where I could, I think, generate that goodwill and direct it inward in meditation. Same with Thanksgiving. I started using that as an opportunity to serve. New Year's became a time for me to set intentions to, to sometimes go into the wilderness or into the mountains like in California in isolation and channel my intention for the new year. So I started deeper and deeper spiritual austerities. And now I don't do that anymore. I feel like I have a little bit more of a conventional approach to holidays, but those new rituals that I adopted and uh, instituted for my life in a disciplined way for some years were an important part, I think, of my psychological growth and transformation. And the society gave me a little bit of the space to do that because I could have time off work and so on during the holidays. I think that's what 
seekers ought to consider, how can I take any of these times and come out of this like a pilgrim? Many parts of Asia, during their holy days, people make a pilgrimage. And that pilgrimage might require them to climb a mountain to a sacred temple. It might require them to, to fast or to endure some type of challenge. But the people feel rejuvenated afterwards, whereas our holidays in modern times just wear us out, exhaust us, fatigue us, stress us out financially because it's all about spending oftentimes. So I'm inviting you to make this time something special for you in your search for self-knowledge. Think about what is the next step in your journey to inner peace. What would support that? What would honor that? Then channel that to every day, not just, not just the holiday or the holy day, but see how a piece of that can be with you as a ritual in your life. So I said before, it'd be good to have a ritual in the morning and in the evening, but I'd like to, to offer a few steps to be mindful of in terms of building the rituals that you want to preserve your spiritual traditions or to create new ones. And one is simply to dedicate time. So if this is a daily ritual, if you do it at like 5 a.m. one day and then whenever the next day, it won't carry the same psychological significance. When we start to honor a certain time and a certain space in the same way, it can actually change the brainwaves when we enter that time or space. When people go into a library, they talk quietly. When people go into a national park, they may feel some awe. When they go to a cathedral or a temple, they feel a sense of reverence. It's because of how the space is maintained, because of the rituals there. And yes, there are rituals in the national park. People come with open hearts and minds to enjoy the wonders of Mother Nature. So that's one. Secondly, be creative. It can't be exactly the same thing because once it becomes the exact same action over and over down to the T, it starts to mean nothing and becomes robotic, mechanical. So maybe like the ritual is something to do with scripture or poetry, but you don't read the exact same line. You read something else and you contemplate that. Like for some years, I would read one line of the Bhagavad Gita every day in Sanskrit so that I wouldn't forget Sanskrit. But every day was a little bit different message. The creativity will help you keep the S with the ritual, keep it spiritual. Then thirdly, leave everything else behind in that moment. If you can't enter into that ritual without worrying about what's coming next or the stress of yesterday, then it's not going to have that power. So you have to practice shelving all of your worries while you do the ritual so that you are really present. Then set an intention when you're performing a ritual, meaning the intention is for peace or for kindness or for self-acceptance or for forgiveness or for your own healing, physical healing or psychological healing, confidence, acceptance, the intention can be for courage as you enter into something that is totally unfamiliar. But when you do the ritual, it reduces performance anxiety as observed by modern psychologists. And it reduces our sensitivity to personal failure. So the ritual has power. Next, invoke 
loving feelings, invoke gratitude, those kind of positive emotions. That's the magic of like Christmas, for instance. Loving feelings is the magic. And movies and stories and everything's been made out of the magic of love at that time. So if you need to bring something, if you need a certain photo or some other symbol of love and peace, use that in the ritual or hold that or feel that. Whatever will help you connect to those feelings. Because if you're not connecting to that, then it loses some of the, uh, the power, the magic. And then finally, a ritual is a ceremony. So this ought to be for, not just for yourself, but for others afterwards. So when I finish my ritual, or when you, when you perform a ritual in temples or churches, usually something is offered to the community. I know like in Indian temples, you offer food to the deity, then the food is distributed to the people. Similarly, you may bring some incense or something to your ritual. You offer it to your higher power, and then you do something for others. The ritual ought to motivate you or inspire you towards kindness or service to others. And when you put those together, you have something really special. And if it's part of your religious system, that's, that's great. And if it's not possible to honor some of those traditions because of how things have changed or baggage that you may have from the relationship to your tradition and your family or to your culture or to society, then you can build it in the way that's right for you. Like I said in the story of the rabbi, that the main thing is that the heart is opening up and connecting to the source. The earth has these seasons and cycles, and so many of our observances have to do with the messages that the earth brought the people, times of harvest, times of new beginnings, the end of spring. The solstice is coming up. The solstice means the end of that part of the revolution of the earth around the sun. So now the days can start to get longer again. It's the end of the darkening of the season. We'll conclude with our own ceremonial meditation. I invite you to close your eyes. Then bring all of your attention into your forehead. Now imagine that in this soul center, in between the eyebrows within, there's a fire, sacred fire, the fire of your life. Let each inhalation be drawn in as an offering to the fire. And try to feel every time you inhale that it expands. That light, whether you see it or don't see it, but try to perceive it any way you can, even if it's just a feeling. And with every exhalation out the mouth, let the fire burn up all the debris, the mental debris. 
of our negativity, of our worry, of our doubt, of our judgment. Fire purifies. As we conclude this meditation, remember that the light is within. Feel the warmth of that light. Try to bring to your life so that it shines out of the eyes and illuminates your words and flows out of your hands, your heart, blessing all those you encounter. The last thing I'd like to say, then, is love is the ritual. <laughs>